So welcome, everyone. <clears throat> and uh, I'd like to uh, speak tonight <clears throat> about, um, I would like to distinguish between right effort and wise effort. And I would uh, suggest those of you who are learned and scholarly that this differentiation is not in the text, so you're not going to find it. It's mine and mine alone. <laughs> it's often risky to do that in Buddhism because everything is so well defined, but that never stopped me. So here we go. <laughs> uh, first, I would like to just mention a very significant teacher to me, Ajahn Buddhadasa. Uh, I was with him for a few years in Thailand. <clears throat> and in Thailand, uh, the assistant abbot there, Ajahn Po, uh, towards the end of my stay, was encouraging me to teach other Westerners who were coming, just in very small numbers. And, and uh, I reluctantly uh, did so. And Ajahn Buddhadasa caught wind of that and poked me a few times, calling me Ajahn, which is not what, it was a poke. In any case, at one point he said to me, um, don't be afraid uh, to uh, speak about anatta, selflessness. He, um, he said, don't, don't be afraid to do that. And he said, uh, don't be afraid to gently shake people because um, anatta will shake people. And uh, if you are being governed by, um, by uh, your desire to keep people uh, within the congregation and not to upset people, then you'll never say uh, directly uh, with much precision what is true. He said, don't be afraid to shake people. And uh, actually, I just remembered that conversation not too long ago, and yet somehow I think I have, I've, um, I've been uh, feeding on it for a number of years, <clears throat> because I think it's really important that when we hear the Dharma, that sometimes there can be it can be upsetting to us. It's not business as usual. If it doesn't allow us to stretch up to its words, if it doesn't allow us to move outside of our normal and habitual way of seeing, then my question is, is it really getting in? Because it should be uh, very confrontive in some ways. And I don't mean, uh, a dis- um, I don't mean aggressively dis- uh, uh, confrontive. I mean uh, where we really have to consider what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we're placing our time and our effort? And do the words stretch me up out of my routine? Am I using my practice uh, in a way that doesn't allow something new to be seen? And it can be done that way. So I really take Ajahn Buddhadasa's words at heart. And any time I give a talk now, I want it to be in some uh, shift or some gradation of stepping out of self-deception. Because from my 
point of view, the heart of the teaching, the central main point of Buddhism is anatta. It is selflessness. And we can talk a long time about the other qualities and not feel stretched, not feel disturbed by those other qualities. Anicca, fair enough. I think anybody along the streets of Worcester could tell you that things change. But anatta, hmm. I remember (laughs) one time uh, back in the beginning of IMS that Joseph uh, had invited the monks from the uh, Spencer Abbey over here, uh, um, not too far from Worcester. And they came and he gave a talk on the three characteristics. And then afterwards, uh, the monks, the staff, all met in the lower walking room of IMS. And one of the young brothers, not the old Trappist fathers, they were pretty easy with the whole talk, but one of the young brothers who had just recently come to the monastery, uh, Spencer Monastery, came up to Joseph, and I was standing by Joseph at the time, and he said, Anicca, I get it, you know, I get it, but don't give me this Anatta stuff. He said, don't tell me about that. That, uh, That's just Buddhism. That's not... (laughs) He was disturbed. He had been poked, okay? And I remember uh, Joseph very kindly just smiling, not defending, which it doesn't need defending. So this question of effort is an interesting one. Uh, First, let me reassure you that all of you in this room, without question, are involved in right effort. And right effort, I will define, is focused energy in line with your sincerity, with sincerity. So you're doing effort in accordance with what you feel is important for yourself. And I think to the person, at least in interviews, it shows, your sincerity shows. There's no question. And this thing, this question of effort is one that um, is defined in so many different ways by so many different people that I just want to throw all of the definitions into the pot of right effort. That effort really is the uh, energy, energy that allows us to come to see, to arrive at the Dharma door, and to actually be willing to perceive what the Dharma is offering. And that what we have to understand, I think, is that there is a continuum of effort. And that continuum of effort uh, is at every phase of our practice, because every phase of our practice we have a different understanding of what the Dharma is about, and we extend the effort in direct proportion to what we think the Dharma is at any given time. Now, many of us in our practice have had the experience of thinking, oh, I've got it now. I finally finally know. After all this time, it finally makes sense in a way that it hasn't. And then for a while, we extend effort in that direction, only 
after a period of sitting, after a period of practice, have our understanding shift. And, oh, now I really understand what the Dharma is about. And we kind of rediscover, as our understanding shifts and deepens, so too does where it is that we focus and where does our energies um, or does our, insert itself into the Dharma? That also changes. I think what's important, this, this kind of uh, changing perspective and understanding of the Dharma is central to all of us because we know we're moving when it shifts, when we're not just resting upon a single configuration. Because the Dharma, as the Buddha said a number of times, is beyond description. And therefore, wherever we rest in our description, the rug has to at some point be pulled out from under it. Or we're losing ourselves in a kind of resting place where the Dharma isn't. So this sense of having the rug pulled out of us, from under us from time to time, is healthy. Although it's upsetting, uh, because as soon as we think we locate it and have our hands around it, it moves off like an oiled pig to squeak somewhere else. And there we go on our chase again to try to discover what, what this dharma, this dharma, this unfathomable dharma is. And I would just pause now and suggest that people who rest too long upon any particular understanding can get encrusted in that. And the practice can become a distant and uh, mechanistic routine and somewhat dry. And the sense that we're just doing things, going through what we have been doing and been told to do perhaps, or what we've read we're supposed to do, but that it's not alivening for us. It doesn't insert a sense of enthusiasm or interest in the same way it did. We may, at that point, this is one of the symptoms of resting too long upon a particular orientation to the Dharma, not allowing ourselves to move. And we often do that because we want it to be safe. We want to know it. We want it to be within the sphere of what we know the mind can hold. And when it gets pulled out and... It's disturbing. We don't really know what we're doing and we don't know where to make our effort. We don't know where to focus. And to save us from that disturbance, we can not challenge the Dharma or challenge ourselves to rise to the, or stretch with, up to where the Dharma is pulling. So I want to really encourage all of us from time to time to take stock of our practice in that way. Some of us can be with a particular style a practice for years, a decade or more, and just do this particular style, and yet something in us just feels that it's not being nourished, not being seen, that there's more somehow than just what I'm being fed. And that's what I think is really healthy about this particular tradition is that it encourages each of us to go out, hear different voices of the Dharma, if you've ever noticed it, if you hear the same way, if you hear the same presentation of the Dharma again and again and again, the words hold you into a particular way, reference point, 
to what you've always known about it. It's very helpful to hear other voices, different ways of saying it. That takes us out of our usual way of perceiving uh, life or the Dharma and gives us a different, oh, let me, oh, that's an interesting way to say it or see it. Let me look at it from that perspective. And it feels like it kind of it gets things flowing. It gets things moving. It lubricates the Dharma. And from time to time, we need to, to lubricate our minds so that they move with that. Now, um, right, right effort is usually what the Buddha talks, speaks about in terms of the Eightfold Path. And I'm going to change the wording uh, so, because I'm not really meaning right effort in terms of what the Buddha's line of reference is in in the Eightfold Path. I'm using this um, term um, as you know as, as the changing quality of how we practice over time, given what we think the practice is about, where we insert our efforts. Early on in my own training, I got involved uh, through Be Here Now, actually, as many people did back in the early 70s. And I turned right to the cookbook section of Be Here Now, which I almost know by heart, even 30 years later. And I um, just did everything the cookbook suggested. I mean, I chanted to God, I stood on my head, I stared at a candle flame, I was a whirling dervish. I <laughs> on and on pranayama. I breathed out of every orifice that I had, <laughs> and I because I was very compelled to, to um, infuse the dharma with my efforts. I had no no idea whatsoever where I was going, but it didn't make much difference. I felt like I was going somewhere. So. I was, I was in a car and I was driving. That's all that really mattered. The destination, I don't know. I mean, what difference did it make? <laughs> I was being sincere. I just wasn't being very astute. <laughs> and uh, eventually, of course, you get a little frustrated <laughs> because you spin a circle for yourself. You start going around and in circles. And uh, so then you begin to see that you need some perspective. This, this thing means, where, where's this thing going? Where's this thing going? And that's, a, that's the beginning of the movement from right effort to wise effort. Now most of us, when we start in meditation, we start very much in Right effort. We, um, but right effort to a beginning student may be a very defensive posture because we all show up with a very strong sense of ego and sense of need to protect ourselves. Uh, and uh, we are told, we are given the task of following the breath and we sit down uh, with sincerity, with right effort, and we focus in there and our minds throw up 
a lot of conflict and difficulty within that simple task, but being taskmasters, we endure and uh, persist. Uh, and we try to get master. We get masterful. As all of you know, as I mention frequently, over time, you put in your time, the number of breaths that you will be present to will increase over time. It's a graph. You can plot it. It doesn't go straight up, but it, with jagged peaks and valleys, the slope of it is up, is positive. And that's graphable. And you can so then you can see yourself progressing, and that's confirmation that your effort is paying off. And you think this is right effort. This is what the Buddha was talking about. Trying hard, being diligent, and putting in my time. And at that phase of understanding, that is right effort. Because we don't know enough to what the teaching is. We just without being able to steady our attention, there is no teaching. It's all theory and it's all concepts. It's all philosophy. It's not until we can steady our attention and move and ingest into the subject itself that the theory becomes integrated. So we start with self and we start out with a set of tasks. Now that's very comforting except that It's just the beginning of the practice. It just gets us going. But we can stay and maintain uh, being taskmasters for the duration far beyond that beginning phase. We can move into words that we love, like words like cultivation, because those are task-oriented words. And our effort loves the effort from the sense of self, from the sense of self, loves tasks. It loves accomplishments. It loves the doing. It loves what it's accomplishing. It can show it on a graph. It can plot it. The signposts are obvious, and I feel good about my practice. And that's very um, satisfying to the sense of self within right effort. Now, after a while, when we're on our breath, we begin to see disturbing, something very disturbing within most of us. And that is that we see the begrudging way and the judgmental way we are with ourselves when we fail at the task. When we're not able to sustain our attention on the breath, there's a kickback from the mind that begins to paralyze us. It begins to show itself very clearly in the practice. That sense of self-judgment, um, of self-criticism. And we think, whoa, you know, and then we hear the words, self-acceptance, self-allowance, and we think, oh, I don't have enough of that. So then wise, or excuse me, then effort, right effort, makes that a new task. Okay, I've been able to steady my attention. Now my attention is showing me that my uh, self-acceptance needs some cultivation. So we move with the same diligence 
and with the same sense of task towards self-acceptance. Through metta, through other forms, we begin to nourish and be kind to ourselves. We offset the imbalance of criticism with some sense of self-kindness. And the thing starts getting fluid again. It all gets moving. We feel balanced and we're moving right through with right effort. Then we begin to understand the practice through whatever means we do that it's not just to remain on the breath and it's not just about self-acceptance. That gives us a nice base of operation, but it doesn't allow us to see much. So then our right effort moves into the exploration of the mind itself, the mind and body, how these two work, the effects of emotion and thought. What are some of the principles on which the mind and the governing laws by which the mind work and the set of principles by which reality is in front of us, the characteristics, all of those different ways, we begin to explore that. And the exploration of the mind also begins to get a sense of the limitation of what I have called myself. Because I see that when I look at emotions and feelings and thoughts and the body, I really don't see too much that I can claim to be me. And yet there does still seem to be a sense of me that is calling forth and struggling with its effort, making a task out of most of my meditation, setting myself up. And there is still that sense, as subtle as it may be, perhaps not as obvious of that sense of inadequacy in the back that's driving all that. And along with that, a kind of doubting in our practice that can be perpetuated for long periods of time. Then something dawns on us, perhaps through a lecture or or, a reading, or perhaps from insight, that this too is limiting. It's limiting, not that it's wrong in any way whatsoever, but I can operate an awful long time with a sense of watcher, getting down and experiencing myself, maybe even experiencing no self. Experiencing this, experiencing that, putting forth effort, generating more microscopic and clarity within that laser beam attention, which can get very sharp and very cutting. And I have experiences of all the characteristics and I have experiences of what the mind is. And yet there seems to be something that doesn't get shaken. The sense of the watcher, the sense of me seems to still be there no matter how much I see. My experience of me coming and going. Something maintains itself despite that coming and going of what I see. So then I do something that is very unsettling. I start asking uncomfortable questions that pull 
the rug out from the level of reality that I have assumed. Because up until this point, I have been very settled and stationed within a level of reality that I've assumed. And I have made my Dharma home very predictable within that level of reality. I know exactly what the Dharma does. I know how to work it. I know the logistics. I know what I'm doing within the practice. It's all completely understood. And all of it is very safe within that certainty. But then I start asking very, very difficult and uncomfortable questions, which force me to stretch up beyond the certainty of that perception of that reality that I've asserted through my practice. Questions like, who am I? Is this true? What is this? Not questions about tasking or how I do it, which just reasserts the level of reality I'm already on, but questions that undermine the very reality I think is in place for me. What is this? Now we are in an uncomfortable spot because the sense of self needs a resting place of certainty. And for a long period of time, we gave it just that within our practice. Now it gets disturbed. and upset because those questions are pulling the certainty and creating confusion. Now at this point, I want to stop for a digress and talk about wise view. Wise view, as most of us are aware, is the first of the Eightfold Path. And actually, effort is the sixth rung. Wise view establishes wise effort. Wise view says that you, the sense of me, is an assumed reality, not the real one. That the real reality is interconnected. It says that if you practice with your efforts from the sense of the assumed reality, your efforts will be right, but they won't be wise. And what the Buddha was saying in his first sermon around wise effort is that he was asserting this point, I believe, among other points, that even from the beginning of Dharma, from the very first time we step together, we must have that assumption foremost in our practice. That this practice is about interconnection, not upon strengthening the doer, the sense of self. That changes everything. But it has taken us a long time, and most of us, even though we might have read that or heard that 
are not ready yet, have not been ready up until this point, to really allow that teaching an integrated part of our practice. Because it takes away all the ways that we have been building our practice for more enjoyment, for more comfort, for self-gratification, for self-improvement. And behind the scenes, many of us have been using our efforts just for that. And that is not a fault. It's just a limitation. Almost all of us have been doing that and will do that from time to time. But wise view, this sense of interconnectedness, has a different orientation entirely to effort. Instead of tasking, accomplishing, setting goals for ourselves and seeing the mileposts along the way as markers that give me credit and credibility in what I'm doing, words of interconnection take away that strategy of practice. Words that I, I, here are four, the four R's. The four R's of wise view. Rejoin, relax, relinquish, and release. Where in there is there any self-fulfillment? Rejoin. Never break away. Never disconnect. In fact, we begin to use the very temptation to disconnect and the pain that is aroused in and within disconnect, disconnection, as a cue towards wise view of rejoining. Rejoin it. Rejoin. Never break it off. How many of us do that in our practice? Relax. Non-resistance, as I spoke about this morning. Non-resistance. No argument fostering no other level of reality through our resistance and our imaginary needs, staying connected and interconnected with this reality at all costs. How many of us do that in our practice? Relinquish. Relinquish the boundary formation between self and other exploring, investigating whatever pain and defensive posture I might be taking in order to establish that. Let me inquire into that and release the need to do so. Release. Release the need to be separate. Release the need for personal definition. It sounds awful, doesn't it? Personal, I, that's what I... Much, much of our practice can be built around personal definition. 
mean, when your neighbor asks you when you come home what you've been doing, you can arouse a little pride, maybe with your meditation shawl thrown nicely over your shoulder, neatly, in a mindful kind of way, and say to him, oh, not too much. Release the need for separation. Release the need for separation. Rejoin, relax, relinquish, and release. You see, wise view, well, it upsets everything. Where I think I'm going how I think I'm going to get there, what I'm going to get when I get there, the sense of being distinguished as I'm getting there. That was under the umbrella of right effort. But wise effort that is informed by wise view, now this shakes my practice considerably. And yet, it is in the direct alignment with the central core teaching of the Buddha. And if I am sincere, which is a big gift for all of us, and am able and willing to make this realignment, this adjustment, the very properties that set right effort in motion become the mechanism for me being able to self-correct into wise effort. When I see myself striving, I release and rejoin. When I find the intimation of ambition or goal setting, I realize in my heart that I'm already here. Not in my mind. I come down eight inches because the heart knows. The heart knows interconnectedness. The mind will never know interconnection. When I assert power and control over something, when I try to manipulate which is what I need to do. I rethink that. I investigate the pain that is driving the need to control. I use wise effort in alignment with my deepest longing, my deepest intentionality for myself. Not the mental intentionality, not the mental wanting to be comfortable, but the deepest longing of my heart that pulls me back into the source of all things. My efforts go towards the willingness to reemerge back into that. 
And all along the way, there is scathing comment from the mind, warning and bewaring ourselves of the treacheries of following wise effort back to its source. But my heart and its longing is no longer listening. It's infused with the energy and urgency of that longing and doesn't have time to quibble and argue with the mind's untruth because I've been willing to look at that untruth through wise effort and to see that whatever the mind is saying, no matter how convincing, when I look at it, doesn't hold up. And now, with this longing, this effort, in addition to aligning itself to the longing, it begins to energetically show up in ways that it never used to under right effort. Under wise effort, it knows that the source of its aliveness lies just beneath the concept, only separated by one thin word. And if I'm quiet and release that word, I can rejoin aliveness itself. So I show up energetically with the willingness to rejoin. And with that, showing up, comes the courage to move beyond our identifying image. That concept, that single concept that keeps us at bay. Because that's always been the problem. One concept. And I realized that wise effort comes from conscious intention. Right effort came from unconscious intention. I didn't really know what was behind there. I was just assuming the reality of what was behind there, the watcher, the image. And I was playing forth the game of meditation from the assumption that that was true, never really looking at it. But now wise effort has energetically made that conscious and no longer moves from the pain of the unconscious. Rather, it steers itself towards the pain to make the pain of the unconscious conscious so that it will no longer ever be driven by reactivity That's wise effort. And then finally, in the service of wise view, as it said in the Sutta Napata, 
it begins to see that effort in the service of self is the cause of suffering itself. And so it relinquishes the need towards why, towards right effort at all. That in some ways, early on in the practice, I have actually been engendering the, practice, the pain of the practice within the intentionality and effort of the doing. And because of sincerity, and perhaps only because of sincerity, I'm not willing any longer to suffer. I'm willing to release the prop that has held the self together through wise effort. May we all know the end of suffering. Can we just sit for a minute or two? So as we sit, what is our effort Where's our effort placed? And are we willing just to question it from time to time, not suggesting, not suggesting anything dramatic, but just question, question it. Not to become too staid. See, the practice isn't that. That's not the point. To stretch. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.